what does it mean for that to be in the DNA of an organization? What does that mean for it to be in the DNA of a process and a relationship between multiple people groups? And how do we recognize that? And then how do we combat that? How do we push back against that, especially as the church? Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Terrell Carter. He's the Vice President of Community Life and Chief Diversity Officer at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois, the Community Team Leader for ChurchNet, Pastor of Webster Groves Baptist Church in Webster Groves, Missouri, and a monthly columnist for Word and Way. And Terrell's also the author of several books, including multiple ones about issues of race and policing. Obviously, that's something that's been in the news a lot, and so I was really glad to have this conversation with Terrell. He brings some unique perspectives and experiences. He's been a police officer, and he's an African-American man. And so I really hope that you will listen carefully to what Terrell has to say about issues of race and policing. He's been thinking a lot about these issues. He's been teaching people about these issues. He's been writing about these issues. And I've appreciated all that he's had to offer over the several years that I've gotten to know Terrell. So here's my conversation with Terrell Carter. All right. Well, Terrell, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me. So you wear many hats. I'm not sure that I can even mention all of them <laughs> right now. You are a pastor. You work at a university. You work for a denominational body. And then you also are a Word of Way columnist, which we appreciate. And so I wonder if you could introduce yourself a little bit for people who aren't familiar with your work. I am Terrell Carter, and I am pastor of Webster Girls Baptist Church in St. Louis. I am also chief diversity officer and special advisor to the president at Greenville University. And I am a member of staff, a voluntary member of staff for ChurchNet, uh, in addition to many other things, as you said. Yes. Well, let's talk about a couple of those roles before we talk about some kind of current event issues that are happening. First of all, a lot of our listeners probably are not going to be familiar with Greenville University. And honestly, I wasn't until you started working there recently. And so I wonder if you could introduce the school to us in, in your role. Greenville University is a Christian liberal arts university located in Greenville, Illinois. It's about 45 miles east of St. Louis. It is a free Methodist university and free Methodists broke off from traditional Methodists over the issue of slavery and women serving fully in leadership and ministry. So they uh, broke away like certain other Baptist denominations away from the larger or traditional body to make sure that women were fully affirmed as well as African-Americans were fully affirmed as, as being fully human. So 
Uh, I have been at the university literally for a year now. Monday marked my one-year anniversary. Greenville is in a unique position because it's a Christian liberal arts university that's located in a rural community in Illinois. The town is not very diverse. It's a wonderful, loving community, but it's not very diverse. And the majority of the diversity that is in the town comes from the university itself through its athletes and student body. And then also I wanted to introduce the church, and particularly because as we're going to be talking about some issues of race, I know that that's been a unique relationship as a historically and predominantly white church, and you are a black pastor there and have been there now for several years. And I wonder if you could talk about that experience. Yeah, I have. I'm. I am going to be celebrating 30 years of ministry this year. Wow! Now that I think about it, I <laughs> preached my first. I, I answered my call to ministry when I was 16 years old. I preached my first sermon when I was 17. And as the old saying goes, if I could talk to that 17 year old boy right now, I would tell him. I give him a lot of advice and words of wisdom. So, but I I grew up again. I, obviously, I'm African American, as you said. But I grew up in a traditionally black church, Missionary Baptist. Missionary Baptist is akin to Southern Baptist in many ways. Women are not always affirmed in leadership, more conservative, but they believe in social justice issues because being African-American, you know, you have a particular experience in this nation. And so growing up, after I answered my call to ministry when I was 16, preached my first sermon when I was 17, I went to Bible college, went to seminary and graduated. And my anticipation, my hope, my belief was that I was going to go and serve the kinds of churches that I grew up in with the idea that I would help them begin to think big -er and to experience other vantage points of our theology of our Christian faith. But I was never called to a African-American church because of my training in white institutions. African-American churches thought I wanted to be white and that I not necessarily was not true. That's not it. But that I was not real enough for them, I guess is probably the simplest way of saying it. And so I found myself multiple times being called to white congregations. And I never necessarily went out searching for any of those congregations. Actually, every congregation that I've served as lead pastor has always been a church that lost their pastor for some reason. And somebody heard about me and asked me to come in and speak. And so none of the churches called me necessarily with the idea that I was African-American and they wanted an African-American pastor. They just were in need and called the first available person. And it just so happened that I was the person. For example, I'm a former St. Louis City police officer. And while I was serving as a police officer from the ages of 23 to 28, there was a church uh, congregation within one of the areas that I served. And I visited that church one Sunday because I actually grew up in that neighborhood as well. The first apartment that I lived in uh, when I moved out of my grandparents' house after graduating high school was around the corner from this church. So I go to this church. They don't have a pastor. And I, you know, volunteered to help, told them that I was a police officer in the area, told them that I, you know, finished my, my undergraduate degree from a Bible college and ended up serving there as interim pastor for several months until they called a pastor. Again, that was a historically white congregation, but they had already built relationships with different racial groups, different ethnic minorities. So for them, it wasn't a big deal. The second congregation that I was called to was also a congregation that was located in one of the districts I had previously patrolled. The challenge with that congregation was the pastor had been killed in the basement of the church by a member as a historically white congregation 
pastor was older, used to come to the neighborhood every day to disciple people and had discipled a African-American from the neighborhood, built a relationship with him. And one day the pastor was in the neighborhood, took the young guy back to the church to have a conversation with him. And the young guy attacked him and killed him in the basement of the church. And so you can understand that that congregation was having a hard time finding someone who wanted to come in and serve as pastor. And uh, the Bible college, the first Bible college that I went to, you know, contacted me and said, hey, you used to be a police officer in this neighborhood. Did you hear about what happened? Would you be willing to send them your resume? I did. Uh, And I'll never forget the first day that I showed up. It was the 4th of July. I walk in the door and there are seven people there, seven white people. One person was in her late 50s, early 60s. Everybody else were in their late 70s, early 80s. And I asked them, do I have the right place? <laughs> and they said, they said, are you Reverend Terrell Carter? Yes, I am. Well, you do have the right place. Come on in. And so literally, I preached that Sunday, did not preach the following Sunday. Two Sundays after that, they called me to be their pastor. And so for them, it wasn't necessarily calling an African-American pastor. It was we are in desperate need of leadership. Would you be willing to come in? You were a former police officer, so you know how to physically take care of yourself. You know the community and, you know, a couple of other things. And I served there, blessed to serve there five years. And in that five-year period, the congregation changed. We lost two of the members in the first year. So it was just me and my family and five other people. But within probably a year and a half, two years, the church began to change and look more like the community. We even had a group of severely disabled, physically disabled and mentally disabled learning adults. The congregation looked completely different within five years and it began to look more like the neighborhood that where the church was located. I'm blessed to currently serve as the pastor of Webster Girls Baptist Church and through my connections with organizations, you know, multiple Baptist organizations within the state. When they lost their pastor who had been there 10 years, not lost, but he retired. When he retired after 10 years, apparently my name was on the list of names to recommend. And I initially went and preached a couple of times, but was serving on part-time staff at a different congregation. And I was also trying to, uh, was completing my doctorate degree, my doctor of ministry degree. So I didn't think that I had time to serve. But after preaching there a couple of times. I was contacted by leadership to ask me to become the interim pastor and served as interim pastor there for a while. And then a few years later was called to be the lead pastor and have been there five years now as well. And you you mentioned something that was going to be my next question, and that was your time as a police officer. This is something that you've written about, that you have some new videos. I guess they're newly out that you had recorded them recently, and we'll put a, a link to them in the show notes at podcast.wordandway.org. And so I wonder if you could talk about your experiences, particularly in the moment that we find ourselves in. And and I know I don't really need to introduce this because it's on the news all across the country, protests and rallies after yet another example of black man unarmed being killed by a police officer. You have written and talked about this type of issue for years now. And so I wonder if you could help us from your experiences to to think about what's happening in our country and what our country is wrestling with and grappling with right now. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a really, really broad issue that's not just about one thing. There are multiple things. I served as a police officer again from 1997 to 2002. And I started as a police officer with the idea that I would help people, that I would make a difference in communities. I, I also needed a job. I, I don't want it to sound like it was all 
everything about me becoming a police officer was altruistic. But I wanted to help people. I wanted to make a difference in communities. But what I quickly learned was policing in general, especially in the city of St. Louis, is not about helping people. It's about a system that has existed for several years. And the, the foundation of that system, most people don't know about, but it still exists. The police department in the city of St. Louis was started. The, what eventually became the police department, the whole system, the idea of law enforcement in the state of Missouri and St. Louis started as an attempt to protect white settlers from Native Americans who were trying to regain their land after settlers had taken it from them. Then eventually it transformed as part of the process to control freed slaves or freed African-Americans after um, the Emancipation Proclamation and all the different things that occurred around that time. And then as part of Reconstruction, it served as a process to capture African-Americans and either return them to their former slave owners or to uh, participate in the process of convict leasing, those different kinds of things. And most of us don't realize that that is part of the history of policing. I recently, or last year, I wrote a book, since you mentioned it, I've written multiple books on this and have written, as you uh, said earlier as well, through the word and the way about, you know, policing and what it means to see people as fully equal. But in that book, the last police book, Police on a Pedestal, I give this history of, you know, what policing started out in the United States and then especially what it started out in, in Missouri. And I asked the question, what does it mean for that to be in the DNA of an organization? What does that mean for it to be in the DNA of a process and a relationship between multiple people groups? And how do we recognize that? And then how do we combat that? How do we push back against that? Especially as the church, we have this habit of, and I'm trying not to mention every book that I'm cre- I've created or written, but I recently wrote a book that's in production now, and it's called Pushing Back Against Bootstrap Theology. And it's being published by Justin Press. The point is, is that in that book, I talk about the idea of the Protestant work ethic. We, most Christians understand what the Protestant work ethic is. Uh, Paul said that if a man is not willing to work, he should not eat, meaning that anyone who's part of the community of faith should be willing to work and pull their weight. Well, we have this idea that that's what everything is supposed to be about, not recognizing that there really are systems in place that do not make it possible for everyone to have the same opportunities as everyone else. But in addition to that, again, we just have this long-held belief in our country that whiteness is superior, is normative, and that everyone else has to live into that. And if you don't, then we have processes, we have police departments, we have legal remedies to deal with you since you are not willing to fall in line and do what we believe you should do, which again is imitate, emulate, Um, whiteness, the experience of whiteness. And the church has a challenge that we're facing is how do we understand that? How do we acknowledge it? How do we understand it? And then how do we help to make it so that that's not true and that people are treated truly equal? You you mentioned this idea of the history of race and racism being in in the DNA of the origin of the police department in St. Louis as well as, as elsewhere, which is also something that in a lot of white churches and white denominations is also in that founding and that DNA of whole denominational bodies created merely to protect and defend slavery, churches that had pastors who were slaveholders. And so, you know, this is something that that is part of our history. And so I wonder, how do we 
what do we need to do to change that? If it's in the DNA of our church or our police force or whatever organization we may be talking about, what are some what are some practical things that we can do to deal with that history of racism that's in our institutional DNA? Number one, we have to recognize and just acknowledge that it exists. I mean, we have a tendency to act like, oh, things are so good now. It doesn't matter what, you know. Yeah, no, that was them. That wasn't me. We become defensive when the, the question or the conversation of race comes up. You know, one of the immediate responses is, well, I never owned any slaves, so you can't blame me. My father and grandfather didn't own any slaves. Well, that is true, but you are also the beneficiary of all the systems that have given you, your father, your grandfather, certain privileges that other people have not had, not just privileges, but certain opportunities. There's too much to try to talk about in one conversation like this. But I mean, just simple as the fact that African-Americans couldn't own property and then they couldn't own property in a certain place. And then, you know, you couldn't have a job or you couldn't have a certain type of job or all those different kind of things. Number one, recognize and be able to acknowledge what has happened in the past and that Many of the complaints, most of the complaints, if not all the complaints that minority groups have are legitimate. And just because they make those complaints does not mean that they are necessarily attacking you. It's as much about the system that exists in our country that makes things uneven, makes things untenable for certain people. Number one, acknowledge that and understand. Number two, be willing to engage in conversation to allow people to express their frustration. You know, that's primarily what this series of protests are about is we have seen yet another black male killed indiscriminately. And yet everyone's immediate response is, oh, we need to, you all shouldn't be angry. Well, you know, the, the plan board is not fair. It's not even. And so people want to be able to express their frustrations. They want to be able to express their heartache, their pain. And I'm thinking about uh, just very recently, a football player, a very popular football player from New Orleans made the statement, you know, I I will never, okay, I I get it that killing African-Americans is wrong. I have African-American teammates, all those different things, but I will not stand for anyone kneeling kneeling on the flag. And so people have to understand that we, we come from different vantage points. And just because, you know, you have, you've had a certain experience that is, does not involve, you know, the pain that other people have had does not make their experiences and their pain illegitimate. So recognize the past, be willing to listen and engage in conversation without, you know, being defensive or taking offense to what someone says, and then be willing to give a hand, to lend a hand, to participate in the process of healing in ways that people suggest to you. Uh, One of the things that minorities experience is, is when a white person walks into the room, they are immediately, that white person is assumed to be the expert and the person who can fix things and that the minority is expected to acquiesce to the leadership of that white person. So I always give the example that, obviously I'm African-American, former police officer, all those things. I'm a college professor, I still teach uh, as well. I am the pastor of a church. And when I go places, participate in events, I walk through the door, and people wonder why I'm there. If I'm in a primarily white you know, event that's not about racial justice, if it's about racial justice, then people understand why I'm there. But if I'm just there in general, then I'm looked at suspiciously or I, you know, but when, then when people find out, oh no, this is Dr. Carter 
and Dr. Carter has done A, B, C, D, then people go, oh, okay, he's legitimate. It's, you know, it's the expectation that, or the belief that minorities don't necessarily bring to the table everything that a white person brings that is actually not true. But it should be that, uh, you know, believers are considered to be equal regardless of, you know, race or gender or economic status. God clearly can use all of us in powerful ways in general. So those are just three really, I know that they're kind of really broad, but they can be brought down to a specific level of, you know, don't take every, when minorities respond, don't take offense to it because they have legitimate reasons. Number two, listen to what their, you know, what their statements are because they come from a place of real pain or real life experience. And just because you haven't experienced it doesn't make it not true. And number three, don't just discount or assume that your position is the best position or your experience is the best position. And just because a minority either looks a particular way or has a particular background, that does not disqualify them from being able to bring something to the conversation or to the equation. I know that there are probably, we could probably spend a long time on this next question, but I'm wondering, maybe you can think about a couple of things. As you've watched the news over the last week and a half, what do you feel like is is most being missed? What would you like, particularly if you have a chance to speak here to white Christians who are watching the news, watching the protests, watching all the reactions that are happening, what, what in the narrative do you find most unhelpful, most problematic that you would like us to think differently about? I find most unhelpful is the fact that there is a story being told in the first place. In the book, Police on a Pedestal, the, the thesis of the book is that law enforcement, that policing, that criminality is the process of telling a story. And based on who's telling the story, that's the story that's being told. So from law enforcement, it's that African-Americans are criminals and that they can't be trusted from, you know, prosecutors. Well, we have to lock up all of these minorities because if we don't, then our neighborhoods won't be safe. It's the politicians that say, oh, we have to make more laws in order to keep you safe and to keep you away from these people or keep these people away from you and from your neighborhoods. I, I wish that people understood that there is a story that's being told and it benefits the storytellers to give them more power to give them more authority, to get you to be willing to let down your guard and to trust them more and to turn over, you know, the protection, the the management of your life to, to someone else. It, it, the irony is, so George Floyd was killed. He was killed immediately over potentially passing a, a fake $20 bill. There was a college student who killed multiple people the day before there was a manhunt and he was taken into custody without incident. Not only was he taken into custody, but he was taken care of when he was taken into custody as well. And they have multiple pictures of police providing him with aid. He had not been injured, but he had been on the run. The bigger point is, is we have to be aware of the story that's being told. A story is being told to frame minorities in a very particular way to scare people and to make people think worse of them and to be willing to give up control or give up power to people that we believe can better help protect us against those people. I know we've already mentioned the fact that you've written a number of books and you were a little shy to, you wouldn't want to be accused of just trying to sit here and promote your book. So I will promote some of them for you. And so if I look you up in Amazon and I don't think it even has all of your books listed, but people can find a bunch of them there. Uh, Leadership in black and white, Machiavellian ministry, 
Healing Racial Divides, which I think we ran an excerpt of in Ward and Way magazine when it when it first came out. I think the part we ran included a little bit of that history about St. Louis and policing, police on a pedestal that you've talked about. The Lord gave me this, walking the blue line. I don't see it here on this list, but I know you have a new one out. I, I've read it, I've read probably about three of your other books. I haven't read your new one, but I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about it because it's got a provocative title and the Ten Commandments for Good Negroes. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the, it's a little cheeky, perhaps, uh, you know, the title. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the idea behind this book and what it is that you're trying to help us to, to learn from it. The uh, book, Ten Commandments for Good Negroes, was, I got the idea the last time um, we had these kind of national uprisings. Michael Brown had been killed in Ferguson, Missouri, but not only had Michael Brown been killed, multiple other African-Americans had been shot and killed by police. And what I kept hearing was white Christians asking the question, like, what's wrong with black people? Why can't they just do what they're told? Why are they always fighting the police? Why won't they just follow the rules? Why are they doing this to themselves, essentially just implying and saying that African-Americans were the problem and not law enforcement? Law enforcement were essentially, you know, looked at as heroes and that African-Americans always looked at villains. And so I ended up creating a series of art images that explored this question that I kept hearing, especially evangelical Christians ask about why can't black people just get along and, and just do what they're supposed to do. And so after creating the series of art images, I thought it would be a good idea to just write out these kinds of questions and to interact with them. And so I took the idea and applied it to in a format, you know, similar to the Ten Commandments, like thou shalt not essentially thinking through the idea of this is what culture, especially white culture, believes in general about African-Americans, that African-Americans should live in a way they should not live in a particular way. They should follow the rules. They shouldn't have certain expectations. And so that's where the idea for the book came. And each chapter of the book is essentially a statement, like a good Negro knows his place. A good Negro understands what the world expects from him and he lives into it. And you use the word cheeky. The idea was not to be cheeky. And I know you're not being disrespectful when you say that, but some people think that's what it was. It was the idea was to try to be cheeky, but no, the idea, the hope was to write true statements or statements that I've either heard or statements that you can infer from the way, from the expectations that people have about African-American culture and to present it back to the world for the world to um, to deal with or to interact with. Yeah, because, you know, it seems like we, we go through all these situations where when one of these incidents happens, we do have the, the blame game or the particularly the blame the victim. Well, you know, he shouldn't have been doing this. And and then we always find some case where it's like, well, he was jogging down the street or, you know, even if he did have a counterfeit 20, right? That's still a very minor crime. And then we have the the one that hasn't got as much attention recently in Louisville, Rihanna Taylor, who was sleeping in her bed. And so, you know, it does seem like that these rules that we can come up with in this one specific case, it doesn't seem to be a, the safe space or the safe way to, to, to act is I think the key of what you're trying to help us to recognize here. Yeah, no, we hold African-American culture to a different standard than we hold anyone else. Again, how many other people have been caught with a counterfeit 20 and have not, you know, been killed, have not been choked out? Dylan Roof, let's give one of the most heinous recent experiences. Dylan Roof walked into an African-American church, killed everyone 
went to jail and the police took him Burger King because he said he was hungry. I mean, they treated him with the com- with compassion after murdering people. So again, it's the idea that we see white culture one way and the things that white culture does. There's always a reason that's explainable or that's understandable or that deserves compassion. But when it re- when it applies to African-American culture, it's something that has to be dealt with and managed and, and changed. So I wonder, as you know, we don't know when this is going to what's going to come next. And we don't know what's coming even next week, not just with you know coronavirus and all the, its impact, but just with these protests. But what would you like to see? And, and, I, and I, maybe I'm, I'm thinking more kind of in the immediate short term, the maybe even just smaller progress steps. What are some things that you would like to see us moving towards uh, and that particularly that white Christians need to be doing at this time? So that, that question is hard for me to answer because we, when we began, I said that it's never just one thing and it's never just about one thing. I, um, I have been helping, I don't want to use work consult, but helping lead a series of discussions with churches in Columbia, Missouri. And, you know, each congregation is at a different point in its progress towards seeing all people and interacting with all people as being fully created and equal in God's image. So I, I guess the, the biggest thing would be to say, start having these conversations, but not just have the conversations, acknowledge where you are, acknowledge and assess your context, and then be willing to engage in further steps to try to improve or to, to, to make your context better. So again, I'll look at it as individuals like you. I know you. You fully affirm the equality of everyone and you are working towards that. But I have friends who say, again, hey, I never owned a slave, so this is not my problem. What I would ask and hope for that person is is that they would sit down and be willing to engage in a conversation and commit to a process of at least saying, all right, I'm going to talk to someone. I'm going to participate in this process. I'm not going to treat them like they're the enemy. I'm not going to make them out to be the enemy. I'm going to do it for the next month and then reevaluate and see what happens. And I hate to sound so technical or, you know, like that's the only thing that can happen, but it's, you know, be open to acknowledging what your life experience is and how it differs from other people and then commit to a process of saying, I'm willing to have multiple conversations. That's what I would hope for on an individual level, but on a much larger group level, like with our local churches is that we would band together and that we would start, you know, not putting pressure. That's the wrong way of saying it, but start engaging law enforcement, start engaging communities in these conversations to help bring about change, to change laws, to change practices on police departments, to change the practices of, you know, legal offices or the legal system that's involved that we would get together, that we would pool our time and our energy together to start making changes, systemic changes. So while people are making personal change, then the system is being changed as well on a much larger, broader level. Well, I appreciate, Terrell, the time that you've given us and all that I've learned from you, from your writing, from conversations we've had, from seeing you lead presentations on some of these topics at churches. And I guess my closing kind of thought here for our conversation today is I just keep kind of thinking about this idea of when we started with all of the roles that you have and some of them have you in Missouri and some of them have you in Illinois. And I just have this image of you crossing back and forth, you know, freely with the Mississippi river with an acknowledgement of how, how significant that line was 150 plus years ago 
one side being a free state, the other side being a slave state, and that river was the line. And some of the early Black Baptist preachers in the St. Louis area taking advantage of that opportunity to, if they were in the middle of the river or on the other side, they could do things like educate young Black kids who couldn't be educated in Missouri. And so, you know, we have this these lines that that have divided us in some ways, you know, that was a river that historically has made a big difference that you are now crossing freely. And so I just really appreciate the the way that you are helping us to find ways to cross these lines that are dividing us and how you are modeling that as you're going back and forth between these different worlds as well as these different states. And so I don't know if you have some closing thoughts on on what it means to to not just stay safely in our own tribe, our own little group of people just like us, but what does it mean and how can we cross those lines that we are allowing to keep us away from other people? Thank you, first off, for the kind words. Thank you for the opportunity to allow me to write about these things on a regular basis in the Word and Way magazine. And thank you for your friendship. I've greatly appreciated it. I, I, I consider this to be my calling. I mean, legitimately, I believe my calling is not just to preach or to serve as traditional pastor, although those are part of it. I believe that part of my calling is to help people understand those who are different from them, to help people build relationships, to restore relationships, and to fully live into what we understand God's kingdom, God's family to be. And that would be my recommendation to people is to see attempt to see people not based on just your personal experience or you know the context that you grew up in but to see them as God sees them to see them as fully made in God's image to fully represent God in this earth and to fully be equal to you and to anyone else who it is that you love and when we can do that i think that it makes not life easier, but it makes the potential of building relationships that much more tenable. And we understand that there's a need, that this is something that God commands us to do, that God commands us, God implores us to see God's creation, God's created people in God's image and to treat them as God would have. Excellent. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Terrell, and uh, many blessings on your work. And I hope with coronavirus and all that's happening right now that you stay safe. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can find a number of books by Terrell Carter by just typing in his name in the book section at Amazon.com or wherever you buy your books. You can also watch those short videos that he's been making about race and policing at YouTube.com slash Terrell Carter One. That's the number one not spelled out. YouTube.com slash Terrell Carter One. And of course, you can find many of his columns at wordandway.org. Don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, a Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, we've got a special offer for you if you're not a subscriber. One year for half off, tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about the program, you can send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.